Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Well, good morning and welcome and welcome to our friends from across the globe. Um, I hope you enjoyed your week off last week. We certainly did. It was nice. Um, I talked two sessions ago about uh, joining the dots and the power of doubt. And uh, in that talk, I stated that in joining the dots, the numbers usually found on the puzzle, remember when you did it as a kid, one, two, three, four, five, should be replaced with the word next, insofar as it relates to life. My reasoning for that was, there's enough pressure on life and enough things that, that translate to us as judgment and condemnation without us feeling that somehow in life there is a one, two, three, four, five, six, and that if you don't get that, not only the numbers, but in the correct sequence, that somehow your life will never be what it should be. Now, for those of you raised in church, that was a particular problem for us because we called it, you will have missed the will of God. And that was a very frightening and terrifying thing. And then um, in the last session, when the guys did such a fantastic job of just reflecting on the things we've talked about, um, Connie sung the next right thing. And uh, that inspired today's theme. And I found myself asking the questions, what does next look like? You know, because, because even this phrase, do the next right thing, has become very popular in business and in life coaching. you just got to do the next right thing. And, and I was raised in church, and I'm used to in church preachers throwing out phrases that sound amazing, and you think, yeah! But then you think, but what the hell does that mean in the context of my life? What does next look like? What do we mean by right, the next right thing? What do we mean by right? See, that, that term in itself can do such damaging and terrifying things to the mind. Right. Did I do the right thing? And again, the more you were raised in a church or religious environment or a very, or a very demanding family environment, the more the word right becomes a word of terror and not a word of encouragement. Did I do the right thing? So what do we mean by right? <clears throat> Have we made it way more than it should ever be? Have we made it an obsession that actually has now become a condemning judgment rather than an encouragement that, that pushes us on to greater things? What do we mean by thing? What is a thing? What does a thing look like to each of us? 
And how do I really know, this is the big question then, that it is the next right thing. So I want to do the next right thing, but how then do I really know it's the next right thing? Can you see how we, we get a whole set of things around this that seems such a positive statement that ultimately when we begin to wrestle with them on a personal level, they don't quite inspire the hope that they should. Now in the video clip that we watched, um, that's Tony Stark a.k.a. Iron Man in the Marvel Comics superhero catalogue. And he has a life-changing experience that emerges not from some great act of saving the world, but from three months in the frustration of being kidnapped into captivity. And so often, I, I think I've lived long enough to know that the Life-changing experiences we have usually relate to the three months that we were kidnapped in captivity than to the other stuff because most of that life is just pushing us along. We're riding the wave of life and we never stop to really think about what's happening and what might be the next right thing. And coming out of it, coming out of this kidnapped into captivity... He could see clearly the next right things to do and to be. And that primarily involved eating a cheeseburger. And one of the reasons Chris got this clip and had it put together is because sometimes the next right thing is eating a cheeseburger. Well, you should go to the hospital. No, I know what I need to do next. I need to eat a cheeseburger. Now, that might sound the stupidest, dumbest, most irrelevant thing in the world, but sometimes eating a cheeseburger is the next right thing in the context of your sanity and your willingness to engage with what it is that you're involved with. It's interesting that after Jesus performed miracles... In the biblical narrative of the Gospels, it seems to me that he made the next, next right thing unmistakably clear. But it was rarely what we probably would think it should have been. To a leper that he healed, and you're a leper in, in first century world, he said, don't tell anyone. What? He's just been healed. He's just got rid of his leprosy. Don't tell anyone. Just go and show yourself to the priest. Don't tell anyone. Just go and present yourself to the authority that can tell you what you need to know so you can get on with life. To a paralytic man who'd been 38 years paralyzed. And in that state, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your bed, go home. That was the next right thing. To a guy called Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, and his wife, whose daughter got sick, and they sent for Jesus, but before Jesus arrived, the daughter died in the narrative of the story, and when Jesus arrived, the daughter was dead, but the story says that Jesus raised her from the dead, and I actually now don't think that the point of the story of Jairus was Jesus raising the daughter from the dead. I think it was about the next right thing. Because when the chances were good that he could get them to swear their lives away for his sake, 
He didn't perform a lecture about dedicating their lives to him or about what grand plans he had for their girl now that she was alive. You know the whole thing, if you heal me, I'll serve you forever. If you'll just heal my kid, I'll give my whole life to you. Jesus could have focused in on that but didn't. Instead, he told them to give her something to eat. After raising their daughter from the actual dead, the one thing Jesus told them in the face of their rapt attention was to go make lunch. At first glance, that seems like a waste of a captive audience. Rather than a life plan, a clear vision, or a five-year list of goals, the leper, the paralytic... And Jairus and his wife were given clear instructions by Jesus about what to do next and only next. Perhaps he knew something about our addiction to clarity on one hand and head in the sand avoidance on the other. And he knew if we could somehow wrangle a five-year plan out of him, we would take it and be on our merry way. Eckhart Tolle, who I've quoted to you before, put it this way. And you've heard me say this on several occasions. Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. And I've always made note to you that's not conscience. Consciousness. How do you know that this is the experience you need? Because it's the experience you're having at this moment. It's the push that takes you to the next right thing if you're willing even a camera falling out of a bag. So what about for us? If we take our cues from Jesus and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because this, this phrase comes up in there, and consider what it means for us to do the next right thing, not the next big thing, not the next impressive thing, which is what, where your head goes, but just the next right thing in front of us, what would that look like? So what is our next right thing? It's a question that gets my attention and it's what I want to explore with you this morning. uh, Some of you will relate to this, you know, probably from some a little less than me and all the way up through Eunice and beyond. Living in the moment the way we were raised was almost a sin. We, I spent so much of my life living in trying to deal with the guilt of the past which is where the particular presentation of Jesus was helpful because my past was still there and I was still useless, but thank God for Jesus. And then we spent the rest of the time living in the future. Jesus is coming again. We're looking for his coming. This life is brief. And, and so what that does in the mind, and I know this is not all of you, but those of you who've been around church for enough time, time becomes an enemy. There's never enough and... And it's a threatening thing because what you do with time is going to determine what happens to you in eternity. Now, I have some huge problems with that, as you know, at this moment. But I'll say a little bit about that as I finish this section. Now, Kung Fu Panda, which is a great film. I mean, it's just awesome. I think the characters behind these films are great. It's a bit like Robin Williams as the genie in Aladdin and... And Jack Black as, uh, as um, uh, the panda here, just absolutely, I just think their ability to do that is phenomenal. 
But he related a, a feeling that, that I think we've all had at some time. Some people, some of you carry this around all the time. I probably suck to more today than anyone in the history of Kung Fu, in the history of China, or in the history of sucking. How many of you felt that? And I realize some, some of you and some of you I'm talking to, that is a constant, it's a constant personal image that you suck more today than anybody sucked ever in the history of sucking. Well, you didn't and you don't, but, but that doesn't negate the feeling of how we get there. And we get there because of the very things we're talking about this morning and why it's so important that we learn the simplicity of doing the next thing, right thing, and not the pressure of it. And so he, he expresses that by the things that we're all familiar with. Now, of course, the five are the Kung Fu masters that he's supposed to become part of that because he's the dragon, something, the dragon warrior, but he doesn't know it yet. And so we get these, these statements like, I'm not like, and that's part of the whole thing of sucking, I'm not like. And we look around and see people and see things, and, and, and that's why I hate a lot of reality TV, because it's false to start with, but young guys and young girls look at that and immediately think, I'm not like, my body's not like, you know, I don't do this like, and so we get all the struggle that's coming in with, with, the, with the psychology of youthfulness now that is so much built around, I'm not like. And then maybe I should just quit. And then, of course, the, uh, the grandmaster, he says, he says, quit, don't quit. <laughs> and uh, Kung Fu Panda had been raised in his, in his dad's place making noodles. He was an expert at noodles. So he'd gone, maybe I should just go back to noodles. And grandmaster says, noodles, not noodles, quit not quit. Can you see the struggle we get into? You are too concerned, and I like this, you are too concerned with what was and what will be. Now, how can you be too concerned about what was and what will be? But there's a word of wisdom in this right there. You are too concerned about what was and what will be. There are lots of you in here, I could name you by name, but I'm not going to do it, but you are too concerned about what was and what will be. One of those is called Anth. You are too concerned about what was and what will be. And it's like, well, shouldn't we be concerned not to the degree that we are, because in doing that, that's the very root of our problem. You are too concerned with what was and what will be. I can think of at least two occasions in, in the biblical narrative where Jesus highlighted this very thing. And these are just two from many. There was a couple who were the sisters of a guy who Jesus raised from the dead called Lazarus. Their names were Martha and Mary. And one day Jesus went to their house and one of them got upset with the other because one of them just thought it would be nice just to spend some time just chilling with Jesus. And the other one's like, no, we should be in the kitchen preparing stuff. Everything should be ready. Who set the table? Who's determined the menu? Has anybody been to the shop? Have we got enough to drink? Have we got the right drinks? What if there are vegans? 
What if there are veggies? Have we got the right thing? And, and so Jesus said, you are concerned about many things, but one thing is lacking and your sister has chosen that. Which to put it into today's terms is she chose the cheeseburger. She chose the cheeseburger. And then another occasion, just really quickly, in, in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like the idea it's called a sermon. It was really just Jesus doing what we do every Sunday morning. Jesus was talking and he's relating stuff and he says, hey guys, listen, just think about the lilies in your garden how much striving goes on for them to flower? Think about the birds. How much worry goes into them getting fed? And he said, don't you realize everything you need is there for you to access if you're willing to access it? But here's how he started it. He said, take no thought for tomorrow. Too concerned. See, this is not just about making decisions because we think do the next right thing. It's about making decisions. It's not just about making decisions. It's about making a life. And until we bring the idea of making a life into the making of decisions, our decisions will dominate to the degree where they take away life. The decision itself, though necessary, is rarely the point. And I need to learn that. The decision, though necessary, is rarely the point. The point is you becoming more fully yourself. Not more conscience, but more consciousness of what I believe is the presence of God, the presence of the divine in the reality of your life. To do the right thing demands just one thing above all. It insists you inhabit the moment. If you miss this today, you might be happy about stuff you've heard, but you've missed the point. To do the right thing demands just one thing above all. It insists you inhabit the moment. The problem is the moment is usually the very thing we don't want to inhabit. We either want the nostalgia of the past or the fantasies of the future, and so we miss the next right thing that is the life-changing revolutionary impartation in our life because we do not insist on inhabiting the moment, this moment, this now. Pain of the past and fear of the future are not great companions when it comes to inhabiting the moment. Inhabiting the moment for many is much harder than it sounds. There's a difference between ignoring the moment and inhabiting the moment. Make sure you get that. And I'm not talking about inhabiting the moment in some kind of fatalistic case, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be, stiff upper lip way. I'm talking about inhabiting the moment in hope Pure, naked, fragile hope that actually thinks something could come of this moment that will stagger me because it will be wonderful. Hope. Remember the Shawshank Redemption? When he talked about 
finding his friend and hoping the Pacific was as blue and he would meet his friend and all would be well. And he finished up by saying, I hope. If you are going to inhabit the moment, you have to become a student of hope. I hope. See, the problem is we've become experts in our humanity of inhibiting the moment rather than inhabiting the moment. Did you catch that? So because of our obsession with past and future, with guilt and fantasy, we inhibit the moment instead of inhabiting the moment. But I want you to inhabit the moment today. Now in that, watch out for the two E's. Ego and excuses. Because they'll get in the way of you inhabiting the moment. And just as an aside, make friends with time again. It really is your friend. So our desire is this morning is that we want you to leave with hope in the moment. Remember what we said earlier, don't inhibit the moment. Inhabit the moment. This moment. The one right now. Now, that clip is taken from the movie Castaway. And uh, in that movie, Tom Hanks plays a guy called Chuck Noland. And there is a, a plane crash and Chuck Nolan finds himself stranded on an uninhabited island after his plane crashes in the South Pacific. And the plot focuses on his desperate attempts to survive and return home. I, I actually think it's the everyman story of the just me experience. We've all crashed our plane. We've all had our island. We've all had our feelings in that island. We've all had the times on that island when we thought, I'd just like it all to end. We've all had the struggles on that island of how do we survive? How do we make it through? Will we ever make it home? And at the end of the the movie, which was the clip we showed, we get treated to an insight into, into Chuck Nolan's mind during that time. And he's reflecting because he realizes he is lost, presumed dead, so what's his wife going to do? She's going to accept that he's lost, presumed dead, and just like he thought, she'll probably, when she gets over the grief, find someone else, and if I ever get back, I will have lost her. And so he'd resolved himself, he was never getting off his island, so he would never get back to her. So the whole thing of loss was there. I knew that I had lost her And he gives the reason, he says, because I knew I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there totally alone. And that's the problem with this thing that grips us when we're wrestling with inhabiting the moment and we get stuck in the lies that have gripped us in past and future and then we are without hope, that we become convinced that we're never getting off that island that we're on. Some of you think I'm never getting off this island I'll die in this totally alone. Because he'd become not just a castaway, but a cast away. And to those of you this morning who are in certain situations, I know that you feel like you've been cast away. You've become 
a castaway, just like he was on this island. And of course, then he talks about, and not that we propagate suicide as a solution to anything, it isn't. But I do understand what drives people there. And of course, like some of us, he's, he's trying to make sure that his attempt at suicide would be successful meant that in his testing the system, the system broke down. So he says, I couldn't even kill myself successfully. And he comes to the conclusion I had power over nothing. Powerlessness. The only thing I could do was stay alive, keep breathing, the only thing I could do was sit down, eat a cheeseburger, have a think. The only thing I could do is pick up my mat and go home and reflect. The only thing I could do was stay alive and keep breathing. Because here's a wonderful statement. What logic says about your situation can and may often in the course of your life be proven all wrong. Boy, there's a great lesson. Even the logic of the situation that we add the thing together can and most often in the course of your life be proven to be all wrong. And the only way to get through that is you have to inhabit the moment, stay alive, keep breathing. Because here's what he says. The tide came in and it gave me a sail. He needed a sail so he could build a raft, so he could get off the island. And the tide came in and it gave him a sail. The tide was coming in. But the tide coming in was not the answer. But what came in on the tide was. And I can guarantee you, after 65 years of life... When you inhabit the moment, the tide will always come in and on the tide will be the sail that you need to take you off your island. I think it's amazing for us that we know the tide comes in twice a day. Can you believe that for your life? I think then came possibly the wisest words of all in respect to the human journey. And this is so much about what it means to do the next right thing. You've got to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise and who knows what the tide could bring. That's hope. Now, of course, in this we get into the science of the subconscious. What do I mean by the science of the subconscious? Heart, mind, gut. Feel think, sense. Oh, but I feel. Yeah, but I think. Well, I just sense. And those are the issues that make us inhibit the moment rather than inhabit the moment and that stop us understanding the next right thing is not the next big thing. It's just the next thing. And the sail comes in on the tide. And so somebody posted this uh, this week. And I wanted to read it to you with a few anthem amendments. My brain and my heart divorced a decade ago over who was to blame about how big of a mess I had become. Eventually, they couldn't be in the same room with each other. Now my head and heart share custody of me. I stay with my brain during the week 
and my heart gets me at weekends. They never speak to each other. Instead, they give me the same note to pass every week, and the notes they send me, they send to one another, always say the same thing. This is your fault. On Sundays, my heart complains about how my head has let me down in the past. And on Wednesdays, my head lists all of the times my heart has screwed things up for my future. They blame each other for the state of my life. There's been a lot of yelling and crying. So lately, I've been spending a lot of time with my gut, who serves as my unofficial therapist. Most nights, I sneak out of the window of my ribcage and slide down my spine and collapse on my gut's plush leather chair that's always open for me. And I just sit, 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 sit until the sun comes up. Last evening, my gut asked me if I was having a hard time being caught between my head and my heart. I nodded. I said I didn't know if I could live with either of them anymore. My gut squeezed my hand. I just can't live with the mistakes of the past or the anxiety about the future, I sighed. But my gut smiled and said, in that case, you should go visit your lungs for a while. Go and watch. Don't say anything. Just watch. I was confused. The look on my face gave it away. If you're exhausted about your heart's obsession with the fixed past and your mind's focus on the uncertainties of the future, your lungs are the perfect place for you. It's the place where yesterday and tomorrow are of no consequence. There is only now. There is only inhale. There is only exhale. There is only this moment. There is only that breath. And in that breath, you can rest while your heart and head work their relationship out. This morning, while my brain was busy reading tea leaves... And while my heart was staring at old photographs, I packed a little bag and walked to the door of my lungs. Before I could even knock, she opened the door with a smile, and as a gust of air embraced me, she said, what took you so long? Now that's amended from a little poem by a guy called John Rodell. What logic says about your situation may be proven all wrong. Because the tide came in and gave me a sail. I've got to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise and who knows what the tide could bring. Your next right thing is to keep breathing. To appreciate the breath of life in your physical and spiritual lungs to gratefully and hopefully know that tomorrow the sun will rise and who knows what the tide could bring. And in it to seek to understand, I am is a complete sentence. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Do 
Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.